Hi listeners, this is Josh Zygmunt, host of the HR Works podcast and content director of the HR Daily Advisor. Welcome to the HR Works Showcase, where we team up with brands you know and love from the world of human resources and people operations, handing over the microphone and letting them hit record. These are episodes produced for you and by you, the members of this great HR community. In today's episode, we're sharing the fourth installment from The Era, a multi-part series presented by Bamboo HR and dedicated to the employee experience. Listen as Bamboo HR's Brad Wrencher takes us on a deep dive into the importance of healthy employee communication and how it can be the key to unlocking long-term success for your organization. Let's check out the episode. You and I believe that we often come to moments where this is either a tell-the-truth moment or a keep-a-friend moment. If I care deeply enough about the people that I work with, I should care enough to give them the gift of honesty, give them the gift of openness, give them the gift of feedback. I had talked to like 20 people. I'm like, are you kidding me? I talked to you and I talked to you and I talked to you and none of you told me I had this big old green chunk in my teeth. Having that conversation is terrifying for people, but it's not terrifying because you're trying to be nice to me. It's terrifying because you're insecure. So early on, we started to see problems with, with people saying, well, you're not, you're not assuming the best. Like I'm doing these things and you're challenging me. And so the, the fundamental myth that you and I need to learn to challenge is, is it possible to tell the truth and keep a friend? Welcome back to another episode of The Era. Thank you for tuning in, joining the conversation, leaving reviews and spreading the word to colleagues and friends. The support and feedback has been tremendous. If you haven't already, be sure to subscribe for easy access to future episodes. And don't miss out on the previous episodes. There's a lot of goodness there. We believe organizations are entering the era of employee experience. And we believe this new era will help us create better company cultures and ultimately lead to better products, services, and business outcomes. Today, we dive deep into healthy communication a key component for highly successful organizations. First, we'll talk to the Bamboo HR co-founders, Ben and Ryan, and hear the origin story behind two company values dedicated to communication, be open and assume the best. Then Joseph Grenny, author of Crucial Conversations and co-founder of Vital Smarts, defines social capital and lag time and tells us whether or not we can both tell the truth and keep a friend. And finally, an employee story about remote work gone wrong. Part one, you've got broccoli in your teeth. So, so listen, I'm, this is, this is probably 10 years ago and you know, I'm, I'm human. So when I'm tired and hungry, I'm cranky. This is Ben Peterson, co-founder and former CEO of Bamboo HR. He's humble and he's confident all at the same time. I first met Ben when we were in college, and my team beat his team in the championship game of the intramural basketball competition. His team really didn't play like a team, played more like a team of all-stars. I like to think that actually this setback at a young age for Ben set the stage for his value of teamwork and creating a great culture. But seriously, Ben is a master communicator and connector of people. One night, I, uh, I'm home, we're getting ready for bed, my wife's in the bathroom, we're talking, she says something, and, it, and I just like, what? Did you just say that to me? Like, that hurt. 
right? I'm human. I have feelings. I don't remember what it was. I don't remember what it was about, but it was late at night. I'm laying in bed. She's getting ready for bed, and I'm just, I'm bugged. I'm just sitting there, and I'm just starting to get more and more frustrated at what she said. And I'm like, I'm thinking of all these, you know, witty retorts. And, and if you know my wife, she is like the kindest most thoughtful person like on the planet. Just to pause here to recognize that Natalie is one of the most important people in the history of Bamboo HR. She's not only one of the nicest and kindest people on the planet, but also exceptionally talented, even at branding. She saved Ben and Ryan from the terrible plan of naming their fledgling company Human Services HQ. I'm forever grateful to Natalie for not having to introduce myself as, hi, I'm Brad from Human Services HQ. And so I'm sitting there and I have this question pop into my head. Would Natalie ever do anything on purpose to hurt you? And it's like, she's the love of my life, man, right? There is no way in a bazillion years that she's going to do something that would, that would hurt. And so at that moment, the whole lens that, which I looked at the, at the issue in the comment just dissipated. It was brand new. And so I then was able to think to myself, okay, well, then why? You know, why did she say it? What was she thinking? What was her experience? How was she experiencing the conversation? And I was able to just relax and have a, have a different mindset and calm down. And it was, I mean, clearly it, it helped. And I'm, hey, I'm still married, right? And so in, at Bamboo HR, we think about principles all the time. You know, we talk about best practices versus best principles, and let's focus on the principles. And so anytime these little nuggets or, or flashes of wisdom that, that get through our dense skulls sometimes, we think about, we talk about. So Ryan and I, we talk about it, we share it, and we talk about how, how that principle applies to how we get work done. And we'll notice things at work, like, you know, someone's frustrated with someone else. And we know that that other person is trying to do their best as well. And everyone at Bamboo, everybody, if they're not, they, they won't be here long and they shouldn't be here. But everybody's trying to do the best. We're trying to do the best for each other. We're trying to do the best for our customers. We're trying to be exceptional in our product. We're trying to be exceptional in communication. And so it's just, you know, having a conversation with someone that you know is just trying to do their best is a lot different than having a conversation with someone that you don't trust, that you don't want to work with, that you want to avoid. You know, I, I love that story because it's really all about intentions, right? What was Natalie's intention? And so Ben, ben kind of clarified that. So how does that translate into the workplace? And this is Ryan Sanders, Bamboo HR co-founder and our chief product officer. He was the original driving force and continues to be behind our award-winning products. He's smart, funny, and one of the world's best prioritizers. Sometimes people are intending to position themselves politically. And sometimes people are doing things to curry favor rather than out of a genuine desire to, to help or to um, show up for others in the right way. Sometimes it's checking the box. The intention is just, hey, I'm supposed to have a one-on-one, -on -one, so check. And so when you get to you know, behaviors, actions, words, and understand, okay, what really is the intention? You know, if, you, if the approach is always, I'm assuming that their intentions are good, honorable, genuine, authentic, then the conversation, the interpretation, all of that changes. And I think that's where the, the powerful unlock is. But at the end of the day, it has to be combined with that second value of be open. These are companion values that are the unlock. I assume good intention, but I have to be open about how I'm experiencing it. Be open and assume the best were two of the values I was most excited about when I started at Bamboo HR. I mean, I love them all, 
But communication is so essential and the two values really go hand in hand so perfectly. The push and pull of these two values helps inform our how, of how we work together every day. It makes the values spring to life and mean something in every interaction. With your values, find ways to give them life in day-to-day interactions, and you'll be amazed to watch them embed themselves into your culture. So there's a, there's a funny little story that goes along with this. There was one day that Ben came in, and he had some chunk of something in his teeth. And it was broccoli. It was a big old chunk of green broccoli, man, right in my front teeth. And he went probably three or four hours, and he had several meetings and talked to several different people. Nobody said a word. I had talked to like 20 people. I'm like, are you kidding me? I talked to you, and I talked to you, and I talked to you, and none of you told me I had this big old green chunk in my teeth. Finally, finally somebody said, Ben, you got some broccoli in his teeth. And he cleans it up, and then he comes out of the office. He goes, new rule at Bamboo. If anybody has something in their teeth, you have to tell them. And uh, it's just one of those classic things. And you can, you can imagine, right? Like, that's just a silly example, but it, it perfectly encapsulates the intent of Be Open. Like you care about the individual. Oh, I don't want to embarrass them, tell them they've got something in their teeth, but you got to tell them that you have something in their teeth. And we do that all day, every day inside of the workplace, but it's not with broccoli in the teeth. It's with other things that are going on. Ryan mentions we experience this type of communication at work every day and not with situations like broccoli in the teeth. I can attest to this and press Ryan to share an example of what he meant. Early on, we had one of our recruiters that gave me some feedback that for me, it was really hard. I I'm, I'm, tend to be more introverted. I'd love to f- process. I need time to think. I don't have the skill that Ben has to rattle stuff off and, and think kind of out loud. And I was sitting in a meeting with our head of HR and, and this recruiter, and they had asked some question and proposed some things. And I just kind of sat back and was thoughtful. And this recruiter's comment to me, she looked me in the eyes. She says, Ryan, we need you to think out loud. It was so, so powerful that I ended up put is on a post-it note and it says PTO, please think out loud and put it on my monitor so that I could remember that it's okay to think out loud. And and what I told her in the moment was I have a really hard time because when I bring something up, I want it to be meaningful. I want it to be helpful. You know, I don't like kind of off the cuff stuff because I want time for it to be a value to even, even say it. And she said, we, we need those thoughts. And so she kind of gave me permission to kind of be in that messy middle during those conversations without feeling like I'm committing. And to this day, it's a game changer. I still find myself kind of leaning back and thinking, and then, oh, I, I got to engage and sharing some stuff. And that happens at work and at home. And, uh, and so that's been a life changer. Giving feedback and receiving feedback with your team can be so powerful and painful at the same time. I remember an experience when a team that I was leading went through the exercise of Patrick Lencioni's Five Dysfunctions of a Team, and we did a group feedback session together where everybody gave feedback to every other person on the team in a group setting. I remember the feeling of vulnerability as my team gave me direct feedback, watching the head nods as the team shared how I could do better. I remember it was hard to actually hold my pen to write the feedback as my hands were so sweaty. I made it through... But the value of the feedback and the openness it created unlocked an extended period of elevated performance that I still value today. 
one of the issues that we had early on and that we need to clarify, and this is true of all values all along the way in business, is that they evolve to have different meanings. And it's a challenge to say, okay, we're, with where we are, what does this mean and how do we act on this value and interpret it? So early on, we started to see problems with, with people saying, well, you're not, you're not assuming the best. Like I'm doing these things and you're challenging me. So you're not, you're not, assuming, the, you're not assuming the best. And it's like, wait, hold on. You know, assume the best doesn't mean that you can't be challenged. Assume the best doesn't mean that people don't get to try and understand why you're doing things the way you're doing or the fact that you may be doing them wrong. So the, the danger became where assume the best was an excuse for the person who may have been subperforming. And it also became an excuse for a person who may be a little more introverted or shy or reserved about challenging well, I'm not going to, you know, I'm not going to ask a question about that behavior or about that decision because I'm just going to to assume the best. I think, you know, we we just have wonderful humans at Bamboo and so everybody's naturally thoughtful and kind, which is great, right? You you love being around people who who have that capacity and that ability. And often um, kindness is misinterpreted as I, I don't want to ask questions like Ben said, or I don't want to challenge, or, you know, maybe I just hope that things work out okay. And things won't work out okay unless we have these conversations. And so, you know, maybe there's that misinterpretation. Kim Scott in her book, Radical Candor, talks about ruinous empathy and the risk there where you care personally, but you don't challenge directly. We have a lot of people that care. They care very deeply about the people around them. They care deeply about our customer. But if we don't challenge directly, then we miss out on the opportunity for tremendous growth and, and kind of unlocking of potential and momentum and, and achievement. And it's one of the things I love about this value is it challenges our, our mindset of being kind, but not caring enough to speak up. I love the quote that feedback is a gift. And I think there's a lot of power in that. And if I care deeply enough about the people that I work with, I should care enough to give them the gift of honesty, to give them the gift of openness, give them the gift of feedback when things aren't going well or when I'm not being brought along and feel like I'm left behind and I'm not as effective as I can be. I can share those experiences. But in addition to that, one of the other challenges is sometimes the effort of applying these values requires a tremendous amount of vulnerability. We have to be willing to put ourselves out there and lean in to that sometimes scary place that's scary even in our most precious relationships. It's one thing to, to be able to go home and talk to a spouse or a, a child or a parent or sibling and be open. It's, wow, at work, whoa, that's scary stuff, right? You're kind of walking into an interesting posture. But the upside of that in any relationship are those wins and that potential. I love that these values have evolved over time to fit the needs of our employees and the company. And they will continue to as Bamboo HR continues to grow. But it really has been a challenge to execute on these two values. Ryan mentioned how kind the people are at Bamboo HR. And that is absolutely true and an incredible strength. But it also gives us an opportunity to reframe what nice actually means when it comes to communicating. So I went to the guy who literally wrote the book, well, books on communication. Part two, lag time. First, you reframe it. It's not nice. And as long as you allow it to be nice, you're going along with the moral excuse that we try to give ourselves when we're not addressing things with one another. You got to challenge that term. It's not nice. This is Joseph Grenny, 
the co-founder of Vital Smarts and four-time New York Times best-selling author of the books Crucial Conversations, Influencer, Crucial Accountability, and Change Anything. I started at age 16 driving down the coast to Palo Alto, California to purchase uh, kit computers from a guy named Steve Wozniak and one named Steve Jobs, and then would drive them back up to Fairfield, California and sell them. That was my early entrepreneurship experience. That evolved into developing software for larger organizations. And really it was in the midst of that that I saw how dysfunctional people can be when they work together. So if you get more than three people together, we often have conflict. So it, it turns out that all of us struggle to have positive thoughts about more than about seven people at the same time. As soon as you get to eight, you got silos and turf and jealousies and competition and all of that. And, and so we've tried to look at social systems. We've tried to look at small businesses, medium size, large, uh, socially organ oriented organizations and said, what are the basic factors? What are the, the behaviors that disproportionately affect whether we achieve our mission, achieve our result. If we just put some of these basic behaviors in place, we wouldn't need the fads. We'd be operating in ways that solved problems routinely, that got the best of our collective thinking, that helped us implement and execute. And so that's where Vital Smarts has tried to focus. According to Joseph, communication revolves around one thing, social capital, which is really a measure of how willing people are to work together to get things done. So social capital, if you want to think about it, is, is the asset that you use to measure leadership effectiveness. Leaders are not about solving problems. That's not what leaders do. Leaders are not about coming up with the next product or the next technology. Leaders are cr about creating a social system that does those things, that solves problems, that comes up with the next technology and does so routinely. The measure of whether a leader is effective or not is whether the people they have put together have a high amount of social capital. What we mean is bonds of reciprocity, bonds of trust, the capacity to work effectively together and seamlessly with low transaction costs. So I know one of Bamboo HR's values is assuming the best. One of the indicators of social capital is when you do something that is uncomfortable for me, Brad, what do I assume? Now, do I assume you were malicious? Do I assume you had it in for me? Do I assume this was about self-promotion for you? Or do I assume, well, he probably doesn't understand its effect on me and I could have a conversation? Whether people go to that first route or the second route is a measure of social capital. Whether they volunteer resources in the service of a higher goal versus jealously guarding them for themselves, that's a measure of social capital. So we've developed a scale of about seven items that are indicators of just how healthy the social system is. And all of those indicators show what some of the symptoms are when it starts to break down. I thought it was interesting. There are symptoms of where social capital starts to break down and ask Joseph if there's anyone who really does this well. Those that invest in the development of social capital are those that do it well. So yeah, fortunately, there are scores and scores of examples of these kinds of organizations. You'll find healthcare organizations where you've got a nurse, for example, who is uh, treated in a way that he or she doesn't appreciate by a physician. And the question is, do they assume the best or do they not? And if they assume the best, they're much more likely to go and confront that physician and give that person feedback so that they can correct their behavior in the future. If they're not, what they end up doing is telling 10 of their colleagues. And that tears down social capital even more. Uh, the Mayo system is one of the best at this. They get it, and they got it from day one that, that what they're about is not medical science exclusively, but social science. 
It's about creating a social system. And so their entire approach is team oriented. You go into Mayo to be diagnosed and that's what they're world class at is diagnosis. All of us know you go into three different doctors and you might get three different diagnoses. What they do is put all those doctors together, all the subspecialists and specialists so that all of them look at the patient at the same time. A lot of times doctors don't like that because they want to work all by themselves. They wanted to be this elite independent contributor and not have anybody else question their opinions. Mayo from day one understood, no, it's, it's about getting multiple perspectives through which you arrive at the best truth and the best outcome for patients. So they've invested in that from day one and done a terrific job of that. I love the idea of social capital as a measure of leadership effectiveness. If you were to do a poll and ask leaders what their job is, many would say it's to make that big decision or to set strategy. But I love that Joseph is challenging that line of thinking to say, your job is to diagnose and architect how the entire organization interacts in a way that benefits the company, in a way that encourages new strategies, new products, and new ideas. I think it's an interesting flip on traditional leadership philosophy. Yeah, we, we look at, you know, the, one of the most uh, studied leaders in the past 20 years, obviously, is Steve Jobs. People call him a leader because he, de he developed, we say, the iPhone or because he, he developed the iPod or he developed the MacBook and you know these technologies that have transformed how we interact together. That's not why he's a leader. The real question about Steve Jobs' leadership was what would happen after he left the organization? And we've seen that there are people that have continued to produce tremendous intellectual property since he left. And as much as he gets dinged for some of his personality deficits, which were real, he clearly created a place where where decisions were made through a contest of ideas, where candor was highly valued, where people stepped up to the plate to advocate a point of view. And it's that kind of vigorous human interaction that creates consistently positive outcomes. So be careful when we talk about creating a social system and producing social capital. This isn't about creating necessarily a nice culture. It ought to be one that's humane. It ought to be one where people will feel loved and appreciated, but they should also feel challenged. They should also be in a place where, where really decisions are made based on this clash and contest of opinions. And that can be vigorous at times. This next line of discussion brings us to Joseph's life's work. What all this boils down to. First, let me share the, the highest level concept, the biggest takeaway that any of your listeners could get from 34 years of research now. It's that, that you can measure the health of your organization. You can even measure the health of your teams. You can measure the health of your relationships, even your family, by looking at one single concept, and that's lag time. What's the lag time between when people know there's a problem and people talk about the problem, period? So you, you, you think about a healthy marriage. And a healthy marriage is one where if one spouse is feeling it, they're pretty quickly able to express it. You talk about it and you come to some resolution. But the resolution can't happen until the talking occurs. You think about healthy teams and intellectual honesty. How many times somebody brings something up in a meeting and the meeting is more about power than truth. It's more about who's saying it than what's being said. And the real conversations happen in the hallway. The lag time becomes enormous. You think about entire organizations and so many times organizations that fail, fail in, a, in an avoidable way. They could have avoided the problems. The, there were people smart enough and aware enough, but the information didn't get out on the table. Lag time killed them. And so the number one takeaway from our crucial conversations research over the past three decades is that the measure of the effectiveness of your leadership is the lag time in your organization. 
How long does it take for people to confront, discuss, and resolve issues? You fix that, and then you've truly leveraged the intellectual capital that you worked so hard to bring in. When, when you interviewed people, when you recruited them, you worked hard to get smart people that seemed to have a good resume that you hoped would bring some experience to the table. But most of the time, you're getting 20% of what they could bring because it's being locked up in lag time. They're not being honest about what they really think. And so that, from, from a crucial conversations perspective, is how everybody listening ought to step back and say, what would you guess the lag time is in your organization right now? And particularly in some of the key departments that are critical success factors for, you, for executing on your mission, and, and what could you do to shrink the lag time? Now, the rest of the book looks at, are there skills you can use to bring these up? But if you as a leader haven't made it clear that that's desirable here, the skills don't matter. This principle of lag time in particular really hits home for me because it's one of the key factors holding back communication at Bamboo HR. And it brings us full circle to where we started. What is nice? What does it look like in the workplace? Is there a way to be nice and still say what needs to be said? First, you reframe it. It's not nice. And as long as you allow it to be nice, you're, you're going along with kind of the, the moral excuse that we try to give ourselves when we're not addressing things with one another. And so you got to challenge that term. It's not nice. And one of the reasons it's not nice is because we know that you've got two options when you've got a crucial conversation you need to hold. You can either talk it out which means finding a way for me to be completely honest with you. So Brad, if, if, if I was your supervisor and I continually break commitments to you, I've been letting you down and you know, you having a very direct conversation with me saying, Hey, I can't get my work done because you make promises to get a decision to me in three days. And it goes three weeks. Sometimes would you please start keeping your promises? Having that conversation is terrifying for people, but it's not terrifying because you're trying to be nice to me. It's terrifying because you're insecure. And our insecurity comes from a false belief that you and I carry in our heads. And this is another big takeaway for your listeners. I, I, I wish I could put spotlights on this. I wish we could have angelic trumpets that would sound before I announce it because it deserves that level of attention. Yeah. What we know is that from the time you and I are three or four years old, we start carrying this program around in our head that causes most of our relationship problems in our life. And that program says essentially this, you often have to choose between telling the truth and keeping a friend. That's the problem. You and I believe that we often come to moments where this is either a tell the truth moment or a keep a friend moment. So when you know that you've got an unreliable boss in me, you think to yourself, is this a tell the truth or a keep a friend moment? Boss has got power, don't have a longstanding relationship, don't know if this is a safe subject. It's a keep a friend moment. And if it's ever a question, you got you and I always go in the keep a friend route, which is why silence is our default. So one of the most important findings in our research is that the only way ultimately to keep a friend is through the truth, not around it. That it's really not kindness to choose rather than talking out to act out your concerns with the other person, because that's the second choice. If you don't talk it out, you act it out. It shows up in your behavior. And you know that, Brad. What you start doing is not asking me for things, but trying to work around me, or you start nagging me, or you ask me two weeks before you actually need it, lying and manipulating me because you, you're trying to game the system so that it'll get you what you want. But what you don't do is tell me exactly what my weaknesses are because they're probably affecting the entire organization, not just you. And so lag time gets longer, the games get deeper, your resentments get wider, you end up 
uh, exploring other job options. And so the, the fundamental myth that you and I need to learn to challenge is, is it possible to tell the truth and keep a friend? I've seen this in so many organizations. You have a manager who scares everybody. And so no one wants to give that direct feedback. And the organization starts to manage around them. And the next thing you know, you've got workflows just to get around having a conversation. If you can seek out clarity on the situation from the start, you can avoid that kind of a disaster. We already know that the relationships we value the most are the ones where we're able to say whatever's on our mind, whatever we think or feel. And those are low transaction cost relationships. They're high trust, they're high social capital relationships, and we love them. But the way you create those is not to stumble on them. The way you create those is by exercising some degree of courage and vulnerability and hopefully skill. There are skills in the Crucial Conversations book that increase the likelihood these will go well. But at the end of the day, it still takes some courage and vulnerability. And when you take that risk and it's rewarded because we get to the other side of this problem together, you and I have a different feeling between us than we could have ever had any other way. Hopefully it's becoming more and more clear at this point that not only can you tell the truth and keep a friend, but that being open will actually strengthen your relationships. And this begs the question, how can leaders do more of it? How can they facilitate that type of behavior in their organizations? Social capital is a skin on skin. It's a retail politics level thing. It's in the trenches. You don't create social capital by standing in front of a stadium filled with 10,000 of your employees and giving just the right speech. It's earned. It's sacrifice that breathes life into values. So uh, Bamboo HR has some, some very lofty values, but nobody believes them when they arrive. Nobody believes that you're sincere about those until they see somebody sacrifice for them. And one of the most, uh, most significant human sacrifices is vulnerability. It's a leader entering a room with 10 direct reports and saying, you know what? I know I'm creating problems for you. And I want to spend the next 30 minutes having you make a list of all the ways that I'm ca causing problems for you. Wow. If, if you want 10 employees to believe that we're about openness here and that they can assume the best of me in the future, you earned it in that moment because you sacrificed your ego for a higher value that you're trying to establish. In every organization, irrespective of size, it's those intimate experiences through which we earn that kind of trust. All this discussion around being open, being vulnerable, and reducing lag time, it got me wondering, how are we doing? At our current place in the evolution of communication, with so much change in technology and workspaces and org structures, are we getting better? Or are we getting worse? So as human beings, we have a conservative bias, and that is that you don't make waves, and, and particularly with a power structure. And organizations are power structures. And so where I don't know who's got more power than I do, I often tend to be sensitive, and my bias is not to say it rather than say too much. All of us are this way. So I've heard people say, well, Dutch people are a lot more candid. Well, we've done research in the Netherlands, and, and we know that they got issues with this too. So if there are differences between the Dutch and Americans and people from Thailand and so forth, there are degrees of difference, not, not profound, substantial differences. One of, one of the reasons I think that we head this direction is because technology has allowed us to cop out more easily. I was standing in the Newark airport 25 years ago 
when we used to use these things called payphones. Uh, has your dad told you about those, Brad? <laughs> <laughs> um, so, so, you know, you used to have to go find a payphone and here's your calling card number and all that. I'm standing next to this guy. I was calling home to tell my wife my flight's on time and, and I'm going to be making it. And this guy next to me was just sweating bullets. And I could tell he was anxious about this call. His finger was shaking as he was punching the numbers on the, on the dial. And, and finally it connects. And I hear him say, hey, I don't like what happened the other day. And he starts to give somebody some feedback. And then at the end, I could tell if that like the voicemail had said, if you want to save your message and send it, press this. If you want to erase it and start again, press this. He erased it and started again. And then erased it and started again. And then erased it and started again. He did this probably nine times, sweating the entire time. At the end, he deleted the message, hung up, and went to the bar. And you know what? That's all of us. That's all of us. He was using voicemail. My guess is that he called at 9.30 at night from the airport because he knew they weren't going to be there and he wanted to leave a voicemail. But think about how many electronic avoidance strategies are available to you and I today. Rather than facing you on a call or facing you in a room, we have all of these options available to try to just throw it over the wall and hope it's going to land effectively. Well, here's the problem with that. Our capacity for empathy as human beings is wired into our visual centers. My ability to see your face, to see your expressions, to read your body language is probably 90% of how I interpret whether you have malicious intent or not. And so we tend not to assume the best of each other because we're cut off from all of those feedback mechanisms that would help me empathize with somebody and see that they seem to be tender towards me as well. And so we're getting worse. And of course, as I talked with Joseph, I had to circle back to the era's main theme, employee experience. For years, there's been a lot of conversation that the customer is at the center of your business. Customer experience has been one of the top one or two priorities in almost every boardroom for the past decade, maybe even century. But the employee experience is what is really becoming the core of what an organization has to do first. If your employees don't believe you, and if they don't believe you actually back those values, it will come off as disingenuous. If you want to delight customers, start by having employees that are so happy with their own experience that they will go above and beyond to support and delight customers. As Joseph and I talked about this, he kindly refocused the attention away from yet another fad and onto humanity, the thing that really matters. So there have been fads over the past 40 years that were customer-centric fads. There have been fads as well that said, well, treat your employees like your best customers, and then they'll treat your customers as though they're, they're like gold. And, and all of them fail in one respect. All of them fail because it's an instrumental motivation. It's an instrumental motivation that says, treat your employees great because then they'll treat your customers great, and then you'll make a lot of money. The principle that all of us seem to have a difficult time embracing is you should treat your employees like people. And yeah. you should treat your customers like people. One of the slogans, I think, in the 1980s was the customer is always right. And we looked at that trying to tear our hair out and scream at it and say, no, the customer isn't always right. The customer is just a person. That's what they are. And people can be stupid. They can be smart. They can be wrong. They can be right. They're a person. So treat them yeah. like a person and give them the dignity of a conversation. All of us know there are times you need to fire a customer. All of us know that there are times when the customer is making a decision that's going to hurt them in the long run, and you ought to probably get in their face and let them know so that you can help them in a way they're not going to help them. We all know that, that they're just people. 
And so back to your question about creating social capital, if that really is the predictor of a social system that works, then the question is how much social capital do you have with your people? That's earned one relationship at a time through authentic relationships that require vulnerability and intimacy and, and trust building at the human level, not the instrumental level. The same is true on the customer side. Customers that feel cared about aren't ones that just had a great customer experience because you had a slick process. Usually it's a human being that had an intimate experience with them that they walked away believing this person had compassion for them. And that's what moved them. And there's nothing more dispiriting than finding out on the other side that that was just a process, not a human interaction. And so I think we can put aside a lot of these things and we'll start stepping up to what it really takes to create organizations that transform lives, both of employees and customers, when we start just recognizing it's about people. And finally, I know we're all fatigued, but the pandemic and for many of us working from home way more than we ever expected will forever impact the way we communicate. And we'd be doing a disservice by not talking about it. How will it play into the way we communicate? So I picked Joseph's brain about it. Yeah, we actually did a very significant study that was pretty arresting to me. I, I learned a lot in doing it. We asked, are there organizations that are surprisingly successful in spite of work from home? What we found is that there are a handful of organizations, about 13% of those that we studied, that have cultures that are stronger now in spite of the fact that they're working from home. And then we dug under that and said, what are they doing? What's different there? And here's the alarming, the, the arresting conclusion that we came to, cohabitating, that officing together is really a, a fig leaf for lazy leadership. That when you, you put everybody into an office, we've just gotten used to the fact that they'll naturally collide with one another They'll create relationships, hopefully build some trust and learn to work with each other. But leaders take credit for that in spite of the fact that it's the building that did it for you. You didn't do it. You didn't make that happen. Now, hopefully listeners will hear where I'm going with this. In order to create social capital, we have to create intentional contacts, rituals of contact. Well, the office was a ritual that was created decades and decades ago. Think about it, a lot of us think, well, the office creates this natural opportunity for us to interact with each other. No, it doesn't. When, when we first invented offices, people were used to working in kind of boutique settings. A lot of work was done in, uh, in the putting out kind of system where individuals took work home and worked in a little artisan place and then aggregated it together later. But the advent of bureaucracy meant that we were going to have these buildings and work together. People were forced to arrive at the same time. They were forced to have lunch at the same time. They were forced to go into the cubicle or the office space that, that we wanted them into. It's just today we accept that as a fact, and so we just do it naturally. So all of that was coercive from day one. What we found from these surprisingly successful organizations is that leaders have understood in those organizations, they have to create coercive interaction opportunities, even virtually. Coercive sounds like a mean word, but the truth is when I tell you, you have to show up at eight o'clock or you're fired, I'm coercing you too. So people saying, we're gonna have a virtual lunch. We're gonna have a virtual cocktail hour. We're going to have a virtual party. We're gonna do this or that and creating opportunities for people to interact in unstructured ways so that they deepen their relationships is something that those organizations have invested in far more than the others. I'll give you one little uh, example of this. Virtual training, it turns out. Virtual training is a terrific opportunity for generating social capital. There's enough structure in the virtual training that people have a reason to need to come. 
But if there's enough unstructured opportunity in it, there's a chance for them to get to know each other. I had an experience. Our company did a virtual training on uh, renewal, on how to renew energy. And I was excited about the training, but the first virtual class or virtual breakout group that I was put into, I was with two other women from my company that I really have not had a single conversation with. And we had a 10 minute breakout and we had about six minutes of work to do. So there was four minutes at the end of that. And there was that 30 second awkward pause. And then I learned some things about these women that I never knew before. And I feel a kinship with them that I never would have had if we were in the office together because I would have never been in a virtual classroom with them. So not only can this be as good as it was before, it can be better if we're taking advantage of it. And these organizations that were surprisingly stronger that had more social capital than they did at the beginning of the pandemic are the ones that are doing those kinds of things. At Bamboo HR, we really had to take a step back. And honestly, who knows exactly how well we're doing at this? But it certainly has made the leadership team be much more intentional about communication and how we're engaging. Mondays are start days for new employees at Bamboo. And their first interaction with Bamboo HR is walking into their home office or sitting down at their kitchen table, wherever they work, and turning on their computer for their first day. Without a welcoming committee or a tour around the office, we as a leadership team have to create that environment so new employees can feel the culture, meet their team, get to know how you get things done here at the company, and feel ultimately like they belong here. It's hard. We found that without intention surrounding what we're going to do and how we're going to do it, there's no easy path. Yeah, that's, that's exactly, the, the word is intention. Leadership is intentional influence. It's an intentional effort to shape human behavior to produce a result. You aren't a leader unless you have followers, and they aren't really followers unless they've changed their behavior as a consequence of your influence. What, what is it, Warren Buffett, that says it isn't until the tide goes out that you know who isn't wearing a swimming suit. We can now tell who the real leaders weren't because they're not stepping in with intentional in influence to compensate for the fact that we don't have office spaces to do their work for them now. I think our work from home study captures a lot of what I think we're gonna go through for the next five years, kind of the shorter interval. Uh, we're going to continue to enjoy the efficiencies and the, the lack of human peril involved with work from home. And we'll be so enamored by that and then we'll pay a dear cost because we'll realize that we're not building social capital that there were relationships of trust that we've been drawing down on. It's like a battery that eventually goes dead. And when it does, terrible things happen. Turnover will be higher. Productivity will be lower. Conflict will increase. Decisions will bog down. You mentioned at Bamboo HR, at Vital Smarts, we've had the same experience. Employees that have been onboarded during this time who know nothing. And to them, it's a transaction. To them, Vital Smarts is, is just a set of products and they look like good stuff but there's no humanity to it yet. There are no relationships there. So lazy organizations that don't understand that leadership is intentional influence will pay a cost. The research and the literature will start to demonstrate that cost. People will then react to it and will force everybody back into offices more than they need to be. And will think that the, that the walls and the space is what was necessary when it never was. All that's necessary is intentional influence, and that can be accomplished virtually, it can be accomplished physically. You can learn more about Joseph Granny, his books, and Vital Smarts by visiting vitalsmarts.com. And this brings us to our final segment, a story about remote work before remote work was commonplace, and about how communication fails when managers don't trust their employees. Part three, snow removal. Here's Bamboo HR's own Nessie Larson. 
So before I came to Bamboo five years ago, I worked at a storage complex. It was a family-owned complex, and the owner's daughter-in-law was working as her manager. And when I first started there, she lived nearby, about 10 minutes away. And she'd come to check on things pretty regularly, or she'd come in for meetings. When I'd been working there about six months, her husband got a job in California. Since it was a family deal, they just kept her on as our manager, and she attempted to keep things running from 1,000 miles away. Her plan to compensate for the separation was communication, communication, communication. There were certain things that worked. She was able to log into the system that we were using and run reports and see how we were doing financially. But as far as the physical operation of the facility, it was ineffective and actually counterproductive. We had two sets of managers that lived on site, ourselves and one other couple. And one of the problems that we had was that she was now too busy or too far removed to pay a lot of attention to who they hired. So we went through six sets of co-managers in the four years that we lived there. When we hired on, there was a two-week process, including background checks and references. And then after she moved, though, she seemed to just hire anyone that would apply. And a couple of times, we ended up having to fire and evict them. One night, she called me at 10 o'clock at night asking me to change the locks because she had just fired and evicted our our co-managers. And we had to hurry and change the locks before anything bad happened. There's one thing in particular, though, that started with communication problems and ended up in a fiasco. We were responsible for snow removal as part of our duties. For a five-acre property, we were given a battery-powered golf cart with a plow. This would have been fine. I mean, it was fine when there was a light skiff, but when it snowed more than a couple of inches, it just became extremely difficult to plow, especially the golf cart was an older model and it was not particularly zippy. Finally, after mentioning this to our manager repeatedly, she agreed that if there was a lot of snow, we could call a snowplow. However, she was the one that got to determine whether or not we had a lot of snow. So every time it snowed, we had to send her a picture of the snow. And while she sat on the beach in 75-degree weather, she would tell us whether or not we had had enough snow to justify calling a snowplow. That year happened to be particularly snowy, and it seemed like every day I was putting my five-month-old baby in her car seat with a blanket and loading her up on the golf cart and spending three to four hours doing snow removal. It was really wearing on our old golf cart, and it got to the point that it just couldn't push snow all the way down to the end of the aisle anymore. So we would just end up pushing it to the side, where it blocked the storage units, or we'd push it into the middle, where it blocked the drains, and it made it hard for our customers to navigate their vehicles. So we asked if they would consider buying a truck or with a plow, or we even volunteered to use our own truck. If they would just buy a plow, we would put it on her own truck and push it, but she did not see the need for that. So finally, it all exploded. We had a big storm, and then shortly after came a big thaw. We hadn't been able to get rid of all the snow from the storm when the thaw hit, so when the snow was melting off, it was melting off all the rooftops, and it was overwhelming the gutters, and it just had nowhere to go. And then at night, it was still cold, so all of that water would freeze and just turn into solid ice. We threw down dozens of bags of ice melts, but it just it barely dented it. It got to the point that we were spending 8 to 10 hours a day battling ice for a solid week. Customers were complaining because their storage units were frozen shut or they couldn't get their vehicles close enough to unload their things because of the ice, and we were constantly worried that someone was going to fall. At that time, the hastily hired coworkers that we had had no interest in helping, 
So we were out until 10 o'clock at night chiseling at it with an ice pick until my husband finally hurt his back and we couldn't do it anymore. Finally, at that point, she hired some help. When you rent a storage unit, you expect to be able to pull your car up and unload your stuff. But when there's a sheet of ice there, that made it hard for them. Like They couldn't unload their stuff, especially using dollies. If you can't get through the ice on your dolly, it makes it very difficult to unload a fridge or something. And so it hurt us. It, we actually moved shortly after that. A lot of it was because of that. And we had been there longer than any managers before. And we probably, truthfully, would have stayed even a couple of years longer. But that was such a bad experience for us that we, after that, we said we're out and we moved the next spring. One thing that I was particularly good at, in my opinion, was collecting on past due units. And so they lost out on that. And I would run all the auctions and such, too. So it hurts their managers and it, it hurt the customers. And it was just an overall bad experience for everybody. I don't know who they got to do that afterwards, but <laughs> it wasn't me. Effective communication is essential for a well-functioning organization. And hopefully after listening, your wheels are turning on a way you can improve communication at your organization or even just in your relationships. I want to thank you for joining us for episode four of The Era. I want to thank Ben Peterson, Ryan Sanders, Joseph Grenny, and Nessie Larson for sharing their wisdom and stories. We'd love for you to subscribe and leave a review wherever you listen to podcasts. Or if you have any topics you want to discuss, send an email to podcast at bambooHR.com. We hope you enjoyed today's HR Work Showcase. And thanks again to our partners at Bamboo HR for sharing another great episode of The Era. If you've enjoyed this latest episode, be sure to check out the previous episodes of the HR Work Showcase for more great insight into building the employee experience. And while you're there, don't forget to subscribe to the HR Works podcast channel for all your HR podcasting needs and to keep up to date with all of our latest shows from the HR Works podcast family. Until next time, this is Josh Zygmunt signing off.